the Bible, I would invite you to join me in Psalm 51. Have you ever had a misconception about someone? You just knew that they would act and respond in a certain way or have a very specific kind of personality, and, and then you meet them and you realize that they're very different than what you thought. All of us have done this at some point. In fact, all of us have probably had this done to us as well. But I believe one of the greatest misconceptions that we have is that one many of us have against God. Let me explain to you what I mean. This psalm that we are looking at this morning is a psalm of confession. It's David laying his sin before God and confessing his wrongs and asking for forgiveness. Now this is something every genuine follower of Christ would tell you is a good thing. That it's good for us to confess sin. But I've talked to a whole lot of believers, and I've talked to many of you, and what I've found out as I talk to people is that not a lot of followers of Christ make a regular habit of confessing sin. And by that I mean setting aside specific time where we confess specific sin before God and ask for cleansing and renewal and restoration. Why is it that we say confession is a good idea, yet spend actually no real time practicing it? I believe it's because we have a misconception about God. When it comes to our sin, we tend to view God as the judge of sin. That he's sitting on the judge's bench, ready to dole out judgment and punishment for our sin. And yes, we know there's forgiveness for sin, but in reality, we view God as the judge of sin more than the forgiver of sin. I think we're afraid of God's judgment and we we fear the consequences of what might happen if we actually tell God that we have sinned and acknowledge our sin before him. And so somehow we think that if we don't say anything, right, if we don't bring it up, then we'll, we'll probably, he won't notice and we will escape whatever consequences might be ready for us. As followers of Christ, what's happened though is we have lost sight of the grace of God. We've lost sight of the fact that our God is a loving Father ready to flood our lives with grace. When we confess sin, what we get is not judgment, but grace. We think confession of sin will invite God's judgment on us, but in reality, what we are going to see in the psalm this morning is that confession of sin gives way to God's grace and His presence in our lives. Confession of sin, it gives way to God's grace and his presence in our lives. And so let's look this morning at Psalm 51. And I would ask if you were able to please stand with me as we read God's word together. This is what David wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And may I be faithful to it this morning. May the things that I say that are not of your spirit, God, may they quickly fall to the floor and be forgotten. And may the things that your spirit prompts me to say, may they sink deep into our hearts and transform our lives. And God, most of all, may Christ be exalted and the gospel be clear for your glory and our great joy. And it's for the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This psalm lays out for us four steps in the process of confession. And the first step is the, might be the most obvious one. It's actually confession. And we see David's confession in the first nine verses of the psalm. He opens the psalm in verse one by immediately crying out for mercy. That David has committed some kind of grievous sin. And the title of the psalm, and most all commentators agree that this psalm falls on the heels of David committing bath, or adultery with Bathsheba and then subsequently ordering the murder of her husband Uriah. Now, in any society and culture, these two things would be seen as heinous sins. And the crazy thing about it is David, he's tried to cover up the adultery with the murder and then he thinks he's gotten away with it. But God, in his mercy sends the prophet Nathan to David and he exposes David's sin. And don't forget that David, he's the king of Israel. And so when his sin is exposed by Nathan, the, the rumors are going to start circulating. They're not really rumors, but the, the thoughts of what David has done and the news of what David has done, it's going to spread like wildfire through the streets of Jerusalem. And David comes before God in this psalm and he doesn't say, God, I'm so embarrassed. God, my reputation, it's taken a hit because of what I've done. No, he comes before God utterly despondent over his sin. He cries out to God for mercy. He comes before God confessing his sin. And there's actually a very specific pattern to it in those first nine verses. In verses one through two, he asks God for cleansing. If you look at the words that he uses there in verse one, blot out my transgressions. He wants what he has done to be covered in such a way that it's no longer seen. And then in verse 2, he says, wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. There he's given the picture of the soiled garments that need to be scrubbed clean. David is saying that I have done something that has made me dirty, that has polluted me, and I need to be cleaned. And where does he go for cleansing? He turns to God. He cries to God for mercy, and his plea for mercy It's founded on the very character and nature of God. He says there, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. In the midst of his sin, when David's thoughts turn to God, 
He doesn't think you're a harsh judge who's going to punish me for this. No, he says you are a loving God who is full of mercy. Because this is what God has shown himself to be over and over again. If you think about God's actions in this world and his ways that are recorded for us in Scripture, it's, it's odd that so often the first thing we think of is that God is a judge. God creates the world, and he creates it out of love. He calls to Abraham, not because of anything Abraham has done, but because of his own mercy and love for Abraham. He establishes the people of Israel out of love for them. And when they grumble and complain in the wilderness, after he has shown his grace and delivered them from slavery, he's patient and merciful with them. He gives them the promised land because he loves them and wants to establish them as his people. He rescues them from their enemies because of the promises he's made to them and his commitment to his faithfulness to them. He sends them prophets over and over and over again to call them back to himself. He sends his son to take the penalty for sin, to demonstrate his love for us time and time again. The picture the Bible paints of God is of a loving father who lavishes grace and mercy on his children. And so David comes and he cries for mercy. He cries for cleansing in those first two verses. And then in verses three through six, David recounts for us why he needs that cleansing. He says, I've sinned and sinned greatly. And this sin, it's bearing down on his soul. He says there, my sin is ever before me. I don't know if you've ever had or experienced this kind of sin that's plagued you in the way David is describing. That you have sinned and the weight of it just sits on your soul. You need to do something with it because it just won't leave you alone. It keeps coming to mind over and over again. This is what David is feeling. And in the midst of that, he he comes confessing his sin before God. And then in verse 4, he says something that I want us to make note of because I've wrestled with it deeply as I've prepared in preaching this text. I've talked with other people about it. I've I've dug into commentaries to figure out what in the world does this really mean. This is what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Why does David say this? I mean, David has Uriah murdered. That's a sin against Uriah. Right? Out of his own lust and desire, he causes Bathsheba to break her marriage vows and commit adultery. That's a sin against Bathsheba. How can David say in verse 4 that it's only against God that he has sinned? And as I wrestled with this and as I talked to people and as I dug into the scriptures, I think there are two reasons that David says this. Reason number one, if you look at the whole of scripture... We understand that people are made in the image of God. That because God has placed his image in man and given them intrinsic worth and value, murder is a sin. That if God doesn't place his image in man and give mankind intrinsic worth and value, then the immorality of murder, it goes away. Likewise, God has ordained the union of man and woman to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the sexual union between a husband and a wife pictures the deeper reality of the union between Christ and the church. And therefore, adultery is wrong because it is an ugly and terrible distortion of the picture of Christ and his church. It's a distortion of the gospel. And so both of these sins that David has committed, they are sins because God has given those things value. 
And so ultimately, David's sin is against God alone because apart from God, the acts he commits, they are not wrong. The second reason, I think, and this is the deeper and more compelling reason. In Romans 3, Paul is arguing at the beginning of Romans 3 that God is righteous uh, to bring judgment on sin. That God is righteous and he has the right to judge sin. And and Paul quotes from Psalm 51 verse 4, the second part of it, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. So Paul is saying there that that God is righteous and must judge sin and he's using this psalm as proof. Now if you think about what David is asking in the context of these verses, he's asking for cleansing from his sin. And so if David has sinned against God, or David has sinned and God has right to judge sin, then how can David ask to be cleansed from his sin? If God does not ultimately judge David for his sin, isn't God unjust? No, he's not, and here's why. David says, I've sinned against you and you only, because in some way, Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David understands that God can cleanse him from sin because God is going to pay for that sin. Through the inspiration of God's Spirit, David foresees what Paul writes in Romans 3, 23 through 26, when he records this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. David understood That while he had sinned against Bathsheba and he had sinned against Uriah, they could not cleanse him of his sin. That no amount of work that he would put in could cleanse him of his sin. David can be cleansed of his sin and ask God for cleansing because the one and the only one who he has sinned against will pay for that sin at the cross. And so David says, against you and you only have I sinned. In his confession of sin, David acknowledges his need for Christ. But in his confession of sin, David also acknowledges that his sin is not merely about action. There in verse 5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. And David confesses that he is a sinner by nature. That David is a sinner not because he sinned, but that he sinned because in his heart he is a sinner. He acknowledges that the problem, it's not actions and circumstances, it's his heart. David's saying, I am the problem. Years ago in the early 1900s, there was an editorial that appeared in the London Times asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? We can still ask that question today. And the the writer um, of this editorial went on to talk about the moral and social ills of the day and rhetorically asking his readers the question, what's wrong with the world today? Well, the author G.K. Chesterton decided to reply with a letter to the editor, and this is what Chesterton wrote. Dear editor, what is wrong with the world today? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. We must recognize that the problem lies in us. It is not out there. It's not external circumstances that are the problem. 
external circumstances, they simply stir up the sediment of sin that is in our heart. We have a problem of the heart, not of action. And David says God delights in truth in the inward being, not in outward action. Heart will always dictate action. That's why God teaches wisdom in the secret heart. And as we will see in just a moment, this is why David asked for God to give him a clean and new heart. So he lays out his sin problem before God in verses 3 through 6. He, he asks for cleansing in 1 through 2. He tells you why he needs the cleansing in 3 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 9, he returns again to the theme of cleansing. He asks God to purge him and wash them or wash him. He wants him to be healed. He asks God in verse 9 to hide his face from my sins and blot out all his iniquities. David's not asking God to turn a blind eye to his sin, but to turn his face from it or to not see it as he cleanses him. Over the course of the last several months, Meredith and I, we have re-entered the, the diaper-changing phase of life. And there are some times where you go to change a diaper and the aroma that comes with that diaper is a little bit pungent. And what, we, what you do in that moment when you go to change the diaper and it hits you is you turn your face to try and get out of the way of the smell. But then you know what we do? We, we go about cleaning up the diaper. And this is what David is asking God to do. Not to ignore his sin, but in his holiness to turn his face from it and then cleanse him of sin. This is what confession is. Asking God to cleanse us from sin, to blot it out and to remove the stain from us. And God will do that. He can do that and he does do that because of Christ. God cannot simply pass over sin. God cannot let sin go unpunished. And so God took our sin and our guilt and he placed it on Christ. Christ bore our guilt in his body on the cross so that we could be made righteous. God hasn't let sin go unpunished. God put forward Christ to receive the punishment for our sin so that when we come every single time confessing sin, there is nothing but grace. There's nothing but washing and purging and blotting and cleansing for you and for me. God is the judge of sin, but if you are in Christ, he is your loving father who has lavished extravagant grace. And after confessing his sin, in verses 1 through 9, David turns to his plea for renewal. He picks this up in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 is probably the most famous verse from the psalm where David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. The word create there in verse 10 is a term for what God alone can do. The creation of a clean heart is brought about only because God acts. God does. The other interesting thing about that verb create is it is a word that can refer to an instantaneous act or to a sustained process. And I think both of these ideas are helpful as we understand the renewal that we ask for when we confess sin. When we ask God to create in us a clean heart, we, we understand that this happens in Christ and it happens immediately. From the moment of your conversion, from that first moment when you confess your sin and you repent of sin and you place your faith in Christ, when you are saved, God removes that, that old dirty heart and he gives you a heart of flesh. He removes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. 
That we are made clean and righteous and holy before God because we are in Christ. And Christ is clean and righteous and holy before God. But even when he does that, sin, it doesn't go away. At least not in my life. I still struggle with it. And have you ever stopped to wonder why God doesn't make you sinless the moment that you place your faith in him? Because he could have done it that way. It wouldn't have been hard for him. He could have made it a completely instantaneous thing. Faith in Christ, perfect sinlessness. So why didn't he? Because for some reasons that we can't fully grasp and understand, God is more glorified through your struggles with sin as the Holy Spirit goes about the process of creating in you a clean heart. The theological term we use for that is called sanctification. Author Barbara Duguid had this to say about the process of sanctification and the work of the Spirit. God thinks that you will actually come to know and love him better as a desperate and weak sinner in continual need of grace than you would as a triumphant Christian warrior who wins each battle against sin. If the job of the Holy Spirit is to make you more humble and dependent on Christ, more grateful for his sacrifice and more adoring of him as a wonderful savior, then he might be doing a very, very good job even though you still sin every day. This is why we need confession of sin. Confessing sin and asking God to cleanse our hearts, it keeps us humble and dependent on his grace. And this is where God wants us to be. David follows in verse 10 his request for a clean heart by saying, renew a right spirit within me. That that through his sin, something has been broken in David's spirit. That he was in good communion with God. His spirit was with God. It was there. And then sin is entered the picture. And now something's broken. And he needs God to fix it. I love this picture because this is what happens so often in my life. That, that David has sinned and that sin has broken something in his spirit. And he's asking God to make it new again. It, it would be like a child with their favorite toy. Right? They play with it all the time. And it brings them great joy. Every time they they have this toy and they play with it, it brings them great joy. But then, as always happens, as they're playing with it, something something they do and a part gets broken. Right? And they bring you the broken toy and the joy is gone. And they say, hey, can you you fix it? So you take the toy and you look at it and you realize, yeah, all I got to do is snap this back together. And you snap it back together and you hand them back the toy and you tell them, there, good as new. And then they take the toy and they go back and play with it. The joy has been restored. And then after a little while of playing with it, what happens? They break it again. And they bring it to you and you fix it again. And the joy is restored. And then they take it and they play with it again and they break it. And you fix it. And they do it again and again and again. This is what God does. I break things all the time in my life. I fail over and over again. And when I come confessing my sin to God and asking him to renew me, you know what he does? He fixes me over and over and over again. And the joy is restored. Confession of sin, it doesn't invite God's judgment. It gives way to a renewed spirit. Confession of sin always gives way to God's grace and his presence in our lives. 
This is why David declares, restore to me the joy of your salvation in verse 12. Have you ever heard anyone said, or maybe you've said, I I wish I had the passion and the zeal for God that I first did when I was saved. That's what confession of sin does. It reminds us of the depth of our sin and the even greater depth of God's grace. And so, follower of Christ, let's plunge into the depths. Let's make confession of sin a habit so that we can go swimming in the deep end of the pool of God's grace. Splashing around in the shallow end is great, but it is a whole lot more fun out in the deep end of God's grace. And as we confess sin, and as we seek renewal, we will find his grace again and again to be deeper than we could ever have fathomed. And as we do this, it will lead to proclamation. This is what it does in David's life. In verses 13 through 15, we see this. He says, after he has confessed sin and experienced renewal that only God can bring, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. After he's confessed his sin and experienced the renewal that God brings, then he says, I will open my mouth and declare your praise. There's an intimate connection between the joy of our salvation and the proclamation of the ways of God. I love the way that David says it in verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. What are the ways of God? They are the ways of grace. Unmerited favor in the presence of God because of what Christ has done. How is it that most unbelievers' initial thoughts about God are one of him being a judge? It's because we have not rightly proclaimed his ways. I don't want you to misunderstand me. God is a judge and he does judge sin and he is right to do so. We never dismiss sin because God never dismisses sin. He takes it very seriously. He took it so seriously that he sent his son, his only son, to die in what I would say is the most brutal way imaginable to pay the penalty for our sin. That's how seriously God took sin. And he took it that seriously because he was serious about extending lavish extravagant grace on you and on me. And so how in our life can confession of sin lead to the proclamation of the ways of God? Let me give you a few examples of the ways I think it can manifest itself in your life. If you're a parent, when you sin against your children, when we sin against our children, I'm a parent, when we act toward them in anger instead of love, confess your sin to God and then confess it to them. And tell them that you have sinned against God and you've sinned against them. And you can come and confess that sin to them and ask forgiveness because God has been gracious and he has forgiven you. If you're married and when you sin against your spouse, when you use your husband or your wife for your own gain instead of serving them and and putting their needs ahead of your own, confess your sin to God and then go and confess it to them. And tell them you've sinned against God and you've sinned against them and that you can come and you can confess your sin to them because God has been gracious and he's forgiven you. For followers of Christ, if you sin against another brother or sister in Christ, confess your sin to God and then go and confess it to them. And you let them know that you can confess your sin and you can come asking forgiveness because God has been gracious and he has forgiven you. But you want to know the really hard one to do? When you sin against someone who's not a believer, maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor. Maybe you lie subtly to them to make yourself look better in their eyes and to build yourself up. And you realize you've done it. You go, you confess your sin to God, 
and then go and confess it to them. You tell them you realize that you have lied to them to make yourself look better. And then you tell them that God is showing you that you don't need to build yourself up in the eyes of other people because you already have approval in his. And you have that approval because of what Christ has done for you at the cross. You go, you confess your sin, and you tell them of the ways of God. And as we do that, it says that sinners will return to God. Confession of sin gives way to God's grace and to his presence. And the final movement of the psalm leads us from uh, proclamation to restoration. In verses 16 through 19, as we confess our sin, we're led into God's presence. It, it brings us, confession of sin brings us into communion with the grace of God. Since God is not waiting to zap us every single time we sin, we can be assured that his grace will abound in our life. And that as we see God's grace abound, it deepens our humility David says there in verse 16 that he does not delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings, but he says in verse 17 that the broken and contrite heart is what God desires. There is a little problem, though, because he seems to say the opposite in verse 19. Right? Then you will delight in right sacrifices and in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. So is David confused or is God confused? Well, it's neither. What David is telling us in verses 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 is that confess, as we confess our sin, it leads to a humble and thankful heart. It leads to a heart that understands it is all about grace, not our performance. It's not about going through the exact right motions of worship to earn God's favor. Right action does not necessarily lead to a right heart, but a heart that has been changed by the grace of God, it it will lead us into right and true action in worship. That's what David is saying. And notice how he rolls it out beyond just the individual. In verse 18, he brings in the corporate aspect of this. He talks about how God will do good to Zion and to the walls of Jerusalem, the corporate people of God. As you confess your sin... And God lavishes his grace on you and you are cleansed and you proclaim the glorious grace of God. This is going to bring vitality and life and health to the body of Christ, to the church. The members of the church, we are Christ's body. That means we are linked. And that as as God's grace pulses through one part of the body, it's going to pump that grace like blood to the other parts of the body. And as the body becomes more and more saturated with grace, it will be more and more healthy. Your body cannot live without oxygen. And so you take oxygen into your lungs and it passes into your blood and then that blood carries the oxygen to the other parts of the body. The body of Christ, the church, it cannot survive without grace. And as you confess your sins and you experience the abundant grace of God, that grace is going to get pumped to the rest of the body. And here's the beautiful part of the way God made this work. Sometimes you're going to get so overwhelmed in your sin. Something's going to be so broken in your spirit that you do not experience the grace of God. It seems far from you. And you're going to run into another follower of Christ who's overflowing in grace. And that grace is going to get pumped into you you're going to begin to experience it again. And then you're going to take that, and as you experience it, you're going to begin to pump it into someone else 
who needs it. And they're going to pump it into someone else. And on and on and on it will go throughout the body because the grace of God, it will never run short. This is why every week we want to rehearse the gospel, the good news of the grace of God for you in our services. This is why we have begun to have a time of confession during our service because it gets us in line with the grace of God and his presence. This is why at the conclusion of our service, we open our altars to say, if you want to come and confess sin to God and experience his grace, this is a time when you can do that. This is why we tell you that if you, if you don't know Christ, you have questions about following him, we would love to answer those. And so in a moment as we sing, if you do have questions about who Christ is and what he has done, you can come and we will be happy to answer those questions for you. But for most of us, what we want to do is we want to just take this as a time of confession of our need of God's grace in our life. He's not an angry judge waiting to punish you for sin. He is a loving father who wants to lavish grace on you. Confession of sin will always give way to God's grace and his presence in our life. Will you be willing to enter in? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. And because of him, it is finished. There's nothing that we need to do. There's nothing more except for Christ and his lavish grace on us. And so, God, may we cultivate a habit of confession of sin, of specific sin in our life. May your spirit reveal those things to us, and may we confess them, not to avoid punishment, but to know that it lines us up with your grace that you want to pour into our lives. God, may we go plunging into the deep end of your grace and find that there is no bottom to it, that you will lavish it on us again and again for as long as we draw breath. Thank you for Christ and his provision of grace in our life. And it's for the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Will you stand as we lift our voices in worship?